Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish off Glenn Coldheart's Red Skin White Masks, starting from chapter 4 and going all the way to the conclusion. So, if you're just tuning into this now, be sure to check out parts 1 and 2. Otherwise, you might not know what's going on, and it's kind of important. So, go check those out. Uh, if you like what I do, you know, there's lots of other episodes you can go and check out. If you found this on YouTube, you can find just the audio on a podcast platform if you'd prefer that. Uh, yeah, tell your friends. Make it a kick out of it. Anyways, yeah, so let's start from chapter 4 here, titled Seeing Red, Reconciliation and Resentment. So in 2008, Stephen Harper, who was then the Prime Minister of Canada, for those that don't know, the Prime Minister is the highest position in political office in Canada. It's our president, but we use the term Prime Minister for anyone who doesn't know. In 2008, this guy, Stephen Harper... Uh, gave it, he's a uh, Stephen Harper. He gave a speech apologizing for Canada's colonial past, and specifically, he was apologizing for the residential school system, which I mentioned in chapter one or part one, where Canada sought to assimilate Indigenous people, Indigenous children, by taking them from their homes, from their communities, and throwing them in largely religious schools that were called residential schools where they endured extreme abuse you know there's just the abuse of having been taken from your homes uh and losing your culture but also just undergoing um rampant physical abuse in these institutions and residential schools were open till like the mid 90s I believe the last one closed in 96 which is just horrifying horrifying and it's not something that people really learn about uh in school it's uh especially especially 20 years ago uh 30 40 years ago that you just didn't learn about it in school so lots of people just didn't know but in 2008 harper gave a lackluster apology for what had happened at the time however it was seen as being like a good step towards canadian acknowledgement and accountability for what they had done to indigenous communities, to ind indigenous children. However, this was undercut where in 2009, so a year later, uh, a calendar year later, it could have been just a few months later technically, but shortly after it, at a G20 summit in, the, I believe it was in the States, uh, he said that Canada had no colonial past and he essentially revealing his true feelings on the matter, which is like... Very frustrating and uh, very violent. So Harper's performance was indicative of a broader global effort to reconcile legacies of violence, to say that an apology is enough, to try and make amends. In Canada, however, or in Canada, reconciliation tried to accomplish three things. It tried to improve Indigenous people's relationships with themselves. That's the first thing. It tried to liberate Indigenous people from a debilitating anger elicited by centuries of oppression. And the third thing, it tried to create harmony between the oppressed and the oppressor, which seemed like an impossible thing to do as long as these, this imbalance is maintained. Now, across the globe, discourses around transitional justice and reconciliation contains some fundamental assumptions about the goodness of forgiveness and the badness of anger. So just to 
iterate once more. The second goal of reconciliation was to liberate indigenous people from a debilitating anger elicited by centuries of oppression. So the Canadian state viewed indigenous people's resentment and anger, but we're going to qualify the difference between these terms in a moment, but it viewed these things as being a hindrance to the healing of these communities, as getting in the way of moving forward, of improving these people's lives. Now, what was embedded within these efforts by the colonial Canadian state was a belief, a firm belief, that the horrors of colonialism existed only in the past and that Indigenous people just have to get over it because you can't change the past, which presents some difficulties, some tensions that we'll get into because it both acknowledges accountability on the part of the Canadian colonial state, but also absolves themselves of responsibility. Were they able to say like, oh, well, it happened before, we're sorry, um, you know, it won't happen again. Now, by saying this, the Canadian colonial state sought to undermine the value of anger and resentment. And Coltart identifies or wants to find the value in, in it the value and resentment as a politicized expression of indigenous anger and outrage directed at a structural at structural and symbolic violence. So before proceeding, Coltheart qualifies that anger and resentment are different, in that resentment is a response to perceived wrongdoing, and it is therefore a politicized anger. So resentment is politicized anger. Anger is something that can be directed against anything, but resentment requires in this context a belief of a wrongdoing that goes down political lines. But political lines really, I mean, that's a very tame term to describe colonialism. But in any case, he describes it as a politicized anger. So we can't just ignore, we can't ignore Nietzsche's influence here against resentment. So for those that aren't familiar in God. I guess it was the genealogy of morality. I think that that's the seminal text. Seminal. That's not a great word. For those that don't know, and I only learned this recently, uh, seminal is a highly gendered term to describe uh, an, an appreciated element of something. So it uh, refers to semen, really. It finds its root in semen. Just putting, I won't delete that out, but just so you know, now that that's what that term means where it comes from, in case you care about that. So we can't really ignore Nietzsche's influence here, specifically um, the view that he develops in the genealogy of morality, which I've actually covered on this channel if you're interested in that. But in that text, he describes ressentiment as a quote-unquote slave morality, where he suggests that people who have been oppressed through years of oppression start to embrace their oppression and start to submit to their own subordination by saying no to themselves, saying yes to the oppressors and saying no to themselves. And they are just stuck, yet they still they feel unhappy because they're saying no to themselves, but they can't move beyond it. They're, they're left in a debilitating mode of, uh, of almost self-oppression through, um, through their own resentment that is essentially stifling self-valorization or stifling self-affirmation. So this view of resentment 
is found among the Canadian state. Not to say that they, you know, Canadian officials had read Nietzsche, but it is more of a broader cultural belief that people just need to get over previous harms inflicted against them to just say yes to the world, say yes to history, say yes to progress, and everything will be fine. It's all about the individual in the end for for Nietzsche, really. And so, you know, what's the point in opposing power? Just try to, you know, make, make ends meet for yourself, try to be happy on your own. So Coulthard is clear that he thinks that resentment can get in the way of some, you know, possible productive anti-colonial efforts. And so he appeals to Fanon, who tried to identify and harness the transgressive potential and power of resentment, of ressentiment. And I think that um, I'm not totally sold on the idea that Nietzsche can't be read as someone who can provide a template for counter-oppressive resistance. Because if you have a community that says no to power and says yes to themselves, this can be an example of opposing Hassan of claiming power for themselves, a will to power, as he might describe it, in order to affirm oneself. Uh, so I think it could also be understood that way as well. But in any case, I think people have read Nietzsche to really put forward a message that people should just be happy with their own oppression, try to find value in it, to live a good life despite oppression and not to be caught up with it, not to be sad, not to feel resentment about it. So Coulthard views resentment as the externalization of previously internalized feelings of anger, and it can be viewed as the breakdown of colonial subjectivities in favor of anti-colonial ones. So he's using Fanon here to understand how resentment can be productive in re reinvigorating lost tradition, in creating new tradition, new values, new cultures through that anger, that politicized anger. And here we might hear a little bit, if anyone's familiar with Audre Lorde's work, who I've covered here as well, um, she has a, an idea about the uses of anger, where anger can be productive in making people's lives better. It's not just something that is going to keep people in bed all day or keep them pouting and not actually doing anything. It can very much be done uh, to make the world a better place or used to make the world a better place. So he uses this, to, yeah, he uses this to think about resentment and resistance in the Cree context, to think about the Cree people's resistance to the Lake Meech Accord and Mohawk resistance to colonial land development at Oka in 1990. So got to give some context here. Uh, the Cree people were largely opposing Quebec's um, burgeoning hydroelectric infrastructure and industrial projects in northern Quebec that was encroaching upon Cree territory. So they were they were opposing this. They were very much they were they were mad about this and they were opposing it. Now, with the in the case of the Mohawk people at Oka in the year 1990, interestingly enough. Uh, if anyone's interested in this, I grew grew up right across the river at Oka, like very, very, very close to here. Uh, I, grew, I was born a few years after this, but in 1990, what had happened was that there was um, a golf course was being extended into Mohawk territory, a stupid golf course, like a, the most ridiculous waste of land and resources and water like a golf course, if uh, it's like the most infuriating thing 
infuriating. Anyways, they were trying to extend a golf course into Mohawk territory, and this what happened is that this this essentially blew up in their faces because Mohawk people would not stand for this, rightly so. They established barricades, closing down the streets. This ultimately um, culminated into an armed conflict between the Canadian military who was called in, the uh, Quebecois police that are called the Sûreté du Québec that were brought in uh, to essentially de-escalate the situation, and a police officer ended up dying through uh, after after shots were were fired from both sides and killing a police officer and it's not entirely clear i don't believe where uh who who killed the police officer it might have been friendly fire it might have been from the mohawk people but this was all indicative of the fact uh that or this was all a product of the fact that some stupid golf course owners wanted to extend their golf course into sacred mohawk territory and eventually the Mohawk people were able to stop them from doing that. So as an act of solidarity as well, at the time, in 1990, the Kanawake people who are um, uh, of the Mohawk Nation, they're, they're around Montreal as well, they had erected their own barricades on the Mercier Bridge leading into Montreal in order to stop the flow of traffic. And these are just example, like a couple of examples, but there, there's so many more. So there's like, the Innu occupation of military bases in Labrador uh, around the same time. Uh, the Cree, uh, Cree people also fighting against oil and gas in northern Quebec and other regions as well. There were indigenous blockades, blockades organized by indigenous communities in British Columbia. Algonquin opposition to logging operations. There's the Temigami resistance to non-native development in their territory. There are all of these resistances. And these are examples of resentment that uh, Coltart is picking up on because they are resistance to oppression and they are fueled by politicized anger. And he says that these are quite good because really the Canadian state and industry should not be encroaching upon these lands because, you know, these lands were also theirs according to various land rights, but the Canadian state doesn't really care about that. So these are just examples of the way that resentment can be productive in maintaining culture and tradition, maintaining people's happiness, which might be a bit of a stretch considering still the presence of colonial, uh, colonial violence against these communities. But in any case, it can be productive. Resentment can be productive. So in the mid-90s, after many demonstrations, the Canadian government published their report on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples which was a step in the right direction, to some extent, in fostering indigenous national sovereignties, but ultimately fell short in terms of its execution. So it was a very fancy report, very long, took many years to write, uh, and it said the right things. But saying the right things are very different from doing the right things. Doing the right things actually requires giving up land, giving up resources, giving up political control, over various communities, which the Canadian state, because it likes control, doesn't want to do. So these events, all of these forms of resistance, intensified public and official belief that Indigenous people were just being sensitive. They're being too sensitive about the past, and they have to just get over it. Of course, Coulthard asks, if a few blockades is as bad as centuries of colonial violence. I mean, put yourself in such shoes, if... 
we know how much uh, Canadians love their property, you know, uh, especially Canadians who live out in the country. And imagine if a golf course wanted to extend onto your property. How would that make you feel? Would you be happy about it? It'd be totally weird if you were, I think. You'd probably want to do more than just set up blockades. I mean, um, you'd, <laughs> the, the lengths you'd go to would probably be unrivaled. But in any case, the public really started to disdain Indigenous communities to oppose Indigenous communities with a lot of fervor because they saw them as just being too sensitive. But there's a tension here that I, I kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, and the, this official report that I just mentioned reveals this tension because this requires an acknowledgement of ongoing colonialism. Otherwise, you there would be no impetus to actually write this thing. There'd be no way to understand indigenous opposition to Canadian authority, to Canadian encroachment upon their territory, to industry encroaching on their territory and so on. So the Canadian government therefore has to acknowledge ongoing colonialism, but to do so would demand more than the government's willing to do or to give them. So no significant changes are made. The Canadian government has to acknowledge that colonialism is not over. It's still very much alive. And it is their responsibility to do something about it, which they are not willing to do. They're only willing to barely acknowledge it because they don't really want to be held accountable and they don't really want to have to do the things that would be necessary to make the situation better. So one of the things they do is adopt the rhetoric of transitional justice that you know, transitional justice is a term that might be useful if there's been a very clear transition of power. Like, for example, if a country was under the rule of a dictator and then there's a people's revolution or some kind of revolution that overthrows the government, there might be a lot of conflict still in the aftermath. And so transitional justice might be used to help this transition into this new uh, government in, you know, to improve the lives of people, make people, you know, accept what's going on and uh, try to, you know, maintain peace. But in the case of Canada, there has been no transition. It's not like uh, recently there's been, you know, Indigenous people have suddenly taken power and there's been transitional justice is needed. It is more a clever way to make it seem as though the Canadian government is doing what it can to improve the situation of uh, to improve the lives of indigenous communities. And so the government contents itself with distributing cultural rights, you know, trying to maintain indigenous language and culture, which are important. Don't get me wrong. That's great. But they're just going to leave intact other colonial states' emphasis on white supremacy, on its superior political status, its judicial system, and its corporate interests or in on corporate interests. So rather than view viewing resentment as a pathology that must be cured, Coulthard wants us to imagine or understand it as an effective indication that we care deeply about ourselves, about our land and cultural communities, and about the rights and obligations we hold. He's talking in the first person as first peoples. And this is because resentment is not the same thing everywhere. It must be contextualized. And in this context, he's contextualizing it as this effective response to uh, get a ambulance in the background. 
It's always fun. All right. Well, yeah, so we <laughs> to hope the ambulance is gone. I hope no one's hurt. Um, yeah, it's, we must always contextualize this resentment. And in this case, he's contextualizing it as an effective indication of ongoing oppression, essentially. And that puts us here into chapter five, titled The Plunge. The plunge into the chasm of the past. Fanon, self-recognition, and decolonization. So here he begins briefly by recounting Fanon's ambiguous view of Nécotide and how it is something of a precursor to identity politics. So for more on that, I recently did an episode titled Fanon versus Césaire, which is a lot more, lot, lot less polemical or a lot less confrontational than the title suggests. But it was just highlighting the issues that Fanon has with Nécotide. And it's not as though there's like a totally clear answer to this. You know, in some parts of his work, he, he really appreciates it. In other parts, he's a little bit more skeptical of its propensity for real change in a colonial context. But Coulthard emphasizes this, um, this fact that it's quite ambiguous. But he goes on to say that he sees the value in self-affirmation and self-affirmative qualities of ne the Negritude movement. So for those that don't know, I guess I should say, the Negritude movement was put forward by, I guess, most popularly Aimé Césaire, but there were, there were a number of other poets, um, novelists, uh, academics who were thinking about this term largely in a French context and in French colonies, uh, mostly black people thinking about the unity of all black people on earth in their mutual experience of oppression and how it's up to them to like reclaim a lost identity. So Coulthard views in this a strong effort to affirm uh, black culture and black identity. And he says that th this can be quite useful as well for indigenous communities. But of course, it's like you cannot conflate the two. Very, very different experiences. And it's important to maintain that there's always going to be a difference there. Indigenous people's uh, experiences of, of colonial oppression are different than black peoples in um, many different settings. So before digging more into Fanon, Coulthard first presents Jean-Paul Sartre's work on French anti-Semitism, where to put it really shortly, to put it in short, Sartre didn't think anything good could come out of the master-slave dialectic found in Hegel, uh, because the only way it could be good would be if the slave turned their gaze back against the master otherwise they're just going to be stuck in this frozen state in the master's gaze however in the case of jewish people Sartre suggests that they don't have the option because of how oppressed they are they can't just turn the gaze back against anti-semites anti-semitism especially after what was seen in world war ii and of course anti-semitism extends much much earlier than that in any case really world war ii coming to a head with um Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. So one option in the face of anti-Semitism for Sartre is for a Jewish person to renounce their identity, to just be like, oh, I'm not Jewish, and then, and then live their lives like that, if that's really possible. But Sartre is framing it this way. And then uh, really all this would do is strengthen anti-Semitism because anti-Semites would have won in that case where anti-Semitism is about getting rid of Jewish people in anti-Jewish anti-Semitism, because Semitism is 
refers to Semitic languages, which also includes Arabic, but, you know, popularly understood as being against Jewish people, it would only really strengthen anti-Semitism because a Jewish person has, has effectively renounced their identity, has gotten rid of it. Now, by contrast, a Jewish person might dig deeper into their Jewish identity to oppose anti-Semitism. And so they maintain their identity, even if it uh, does, you know, even if in just affirming their identity technically does little to oppose anti-Semitism, it's still something that Sartre, according to Coltart here, uh, Sartre is saying this, you know, this is still a good thing. So Coltart jumps in here to say that self-affirmation is good, but it's only, it's only part of the equation where, you know, we have to go further to account for how uh, economic and social factors need to be changed so as to end anti-Semitism in this case, or to end colonial state violence, if we consider the case of colonialism. So Sartre suggests that once these broader inequalities have been dealt with, self-affirmation shouldn't be necessary, because if there's no anti-Semitism, then there's no need to really affirm one's identity to oppose anti-Semitism, which is very problematic because one of Sartre's really messed up claims is that it's something like it's the anti-Semite who creates the Jew, which is to say that like Jewish people don't exist. They only exist in their oppression, which is totally messed up uh, like for a number of reasons. But clearly Jewish identity extends far beyond just oppression. And to say otherwise is to is to give a lot of power to um, to anti-Semitism in in the construction of Jewish identity, which is like it's just mirroring the same kind of oppression. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he goes so far as to say that identity is just a stepping stone to dealing with bigger problems like class issues, and we get the same thing as well, or a similar type of argument in Adorno, where he says that. When people are mad at Jewish people, when anti-Semites are mad at Jewish people, mad probably is not like not actually getting at how, you know, what it is that they experience toward Jewish people. But when they direct their anger towards Jewish people, Adorno says that they're really angry at capitalism and they're just using Jewish people as a scapegoat. But even this is like just submitting to these anti-Semitic ideas that Jewish people somehow have this affinity with money with uh, financial capital, and therefore there's like some kind of weird credence to it. And I've covered, I believe it's in, um, I believe it's in the dialectic of enlightenment where he talks about that with Horkheimer, but it could have been the culture industry as well. Um, might be the culture industry. Anyways, I've covered both if you want stuff on that. But anyways, it's problematic. It's very problematic because it just reduces Jewish identity to oppression, which is total erasure. So Coltart obviously has issues with this, especially in the case of black people and the Negritude movement, because it subordinates racism to classism. It says that class is really the most important thing. Uh, and it forecloses a future of black self-affirmation by saying that, you know, once the class struggle has been finished, then nothing else matters. Identity doesn't matter. Culture doesn't matter. It's all about class. Now, obviously, Fanon was crit critical of the Negritude movement for essentialist claims, sustaining binaries, and being quite elitist. Quite elitist, being elitist. There are also other issues that Fanon raises, like how um, a real anti-colonial struggle is going to be a national struggle. 
And you can't have a national struggle in the way that Fanon imagines it if you think that, like, all black people share a common heritage that has been uh, sequestered, that has been erased through colonialism, that they have to try to revitalize. What that does is, for Fanon, is it erases the specific local experiences of different, differently situated black people in relation to colonialism, where black people in Chicago, is one of his examples, are going to have a very different experience of colonial oppression than black people in Kenya. And it's important to acknowledge these differences so that they can each come up with their own opposition to colonialism. So Fanon sees Negritude as a movement like Sartre, but not to arrive at a classless society, but to establish the, the colonized as historical protagonists oriented toward a change in colonial stru structure. So following Fanon, Coulthard advocates a resurgent approach to indigenous decolonization that builds on the value and insights of our past in our efforts to secure a non-colonial present and future. So it's not about ending class, because class is like a totally European, well, not entirely European, but largely European construct that didn't exist in indigenous communities. So like for them, a resurgent decolonial project would arrive at a classless society, but without all of the other attachments of the understandings of of like resources and land that the Western mind um, really embraces. Now that puts us here into the conclusion where Coulthard is going to meditate on the Idle No More movement in um, 2012, 2013, in that, in that time period in Canada and the United States. So here, Coulthard wants to think about indigenous resurgence against Fanon's views of decol decolonial movements. So Coulthard isn't satisfied with Fanon's emphasis on the future at the expense of the past. This needs a little bit of um, clarification. So in Fanon's work, he's very clear that the goal of decolonial movement or decolonization is to look to the future, not to get caught up in the past and trying to revitalize a lost past. Because he says that that's like a trap. If you do that, you're submitting to the idea, uh, ideals of the colonizer, that you have to be the right kind of like black person with this past that has been erased. Instead, Fanon wants to imagine new futures in the formation of new nations through collective yet localized struggles against colonialism. So Coulthard opposes this by saying that for indigenous communities, revitalizing the past is actually the, the primary goal. It's not just about looking to the future. It's about reclaiming lost, um, lost practices, lost traditions, uh, ways of, ways of self-management, self of the accumulation of resources, and so on. So to think about this, he turns to two figures. He turns to the Mohawk thinker Tayake Alfred and Anishinaabe thinker Leanne Simpson to better understand indigenous resurgence. So both agree that decolonization means self-affirmation to realize indigenous identities and nations away from colonial rule. That's something can be agreed upon. <laughs> I would hope we agree on this. Unlike Fanon, this isn't just treated as a stepping stone towards a future national paradigm with different people opposing, ha having opposed colonialism in their own way. So this means not being satisfied with reconciliation 
for uh, Indigenous communities with the colonial Canadian state or with any colonial state. So what is important about Alfred and Simpson's contributions is their consideration of gender as well. They aren't, you know, they're trying to create a more equitable world as well between men and women in these settings, including as well queer people, uh, lesbian and gay people, two-spirit people, and so on. So to consider gender and the inseparability of colonialism from heteropatriarchy, where colonialism tries to impose European ideals about gender relations, relationship between men and women, impose this upon indigenous communities. So here he considers in more detail the 2012-2013 I Don't Know More movement that emerged in response to Bill C-45 from the Canadian government that sought to erode remaining Indigenous land claims and make it easier for corporations to pursue resources on Indigenous land, uh, be it oil or um, wood or water resources, and so on. So I Don't Know More sparked protests, drum circles, sit-ins, uh, teach-ins, public uh, panels, and so on. And of course, people in Canada were mad. They did not like this. Settlers in Canada were mad. Many of them were. And news pundits tried to discredit the movement for its lack of cohesion. And this is something you'll often hear among people on the right, about people on the left, that there's like a lot of infighting among the left. And that's, in my mind, that's just because that people on the left hold each other accountable for things. And if someone says something messed up, they should be held accountable for it, um, not necessarily through like punishing them, but by, you know, stirring up conflict, by talking about these things, by having discussions, which are difficult. Remember, discussions are hard. But right-wing news outlets in the Canadian context were largely, and left-wing ones for that matter, were trying to discredit the I don't know more movement for its lack of cohesion. And insofar as the lack of cohesion is indicative of a bottom-up approach to anti-oppressive struggles, Coulthard observes that this is precisely what made it radical and transformational. Because it was not organized by a few elites that would cohere an entire group into a single homogenous mass, it was instead done locally. Different people in different settings organizing their own sit-ins, their own teachings, their own protests in their own ways. That's what made it quite radical for um, for Coulthard, because it was everyday people engaging in this, not just the elite engaging in negotiations with the Canadian state. So Idle No More pursued a decolonial path separate from reconciliation and state-sponsored dialogue. Now, you know, this was done in 2012, 2013, Perhaps Coulthard was a little bit optimistic about what would come of it. Maybe he was auspicious, which means favorable to success of it in its uh, actual objectives and aims. But still to this day, now in 2022, um, there's innumerable indigenous communities who don't have access to clean drinking water, who are continually being left out of negotiations about land claims, whose resources are being extracted by predatory um corporations and industry who need to fight against pipelines running through their territory. Again, like my thing is that to say, which is also regrettable that we need to be like, imagine if it happened to you to actually care about other people. But imagine if a pipeline was running through your gated community. If you live in one, see how happy you would be about that. And it runs through indigenous territory. And like, 
you know, the problems still persist. But at the time, Coltheart was quite optimistic about the transformational potential of the Idle No More movement. So he offers five theses meditating on the Idle No More movement that are necessary for indigenous resurgence. And these five theses go as follows. The first is the necessity of direct action. So this means resisting normative models that cast direct action as self-defeating or as illegitimate, favoring instead reformist things like negotiations, which have not worked out well so far. But the Canadian state prefers them because, you know, they can get what they want in those negotiations. And this also means opposing the idea that (laughs) negotiations are best for action. Read your notes, David, read your notes. Uh, The second thesis is that capitalism must end, capitalism no more. So blockades that are often dismissed as viable forms of resistance, they do a lot to disrupt capitalist exploitation. They stop the movement of capital. They stop the movement of resources. They stop the movement of labor from place to place. So part of the difficulty is to turn localized protests to a broader challenge against capitalism, which he thinks is totally necessary. And revitalizing indigenous ways of knowing and relationships to the land is one way to oppose capitalist exploitation. And so in his words, he writes, for capitalism to die, we must actively participate in the construction of indigenous alternatives to it. That puts us into the third thesis, the dispossession and indigenous sovereignty in the city. So for decades and centuries, indigenous people were forbidden from cities and relegated to the country, to rural areas. And over time, more and more indigenous people uh, have called the cities their home, you know, migrating into the cities. But other policies have effectively undermine their, the, the places that they occupy in the cities. So indigenous people within cities will probably mostly occupy poor neighborhoods, places that are probably going to undergo gentrification. And he makes an interesting parallel here between legacies of colonialism, where colonizers arrived in a territory and said that, oh, we can, we can do better with this territory than the indigenous people here, than the people here. Uh, so we're just going to do that. And he draws a parallel between that attitude and what is currently going on in cities with gentrification, where indigenous people and other people of color who largely occupy uh, poor parts of a neighborhood are going to undergo a kind of dispossession of that territory through gentrification, where property value uh, is going to come down because white supremacy dictates that places with fewer white people are going to be less valuable. And so the uh, rich landowners are going to come in, buy up all the territory, and then rent out their properties to like a Starbucks, rent out their properties to microbreweries to set up for uh, for people uh, to just consume copious amounts of beverages. Gentrification and beverages really go hand in hand. Uh, expensive beverages that uh, the people who have been living there don't get any piece of the pie of they don't get any money for it and are forced to move to another neighborhood and so you you progressively see areas of cities from the center going out start to become gentrified poorer people start to be pushed further and further to the margins of the cities and montreal is so bad for that i mean i live in montreal it's like so bad i live i live in um for anyone familiar i live uh, in oshlega which is like a kind of historically working class neighborhood uh, so it's in the process of being gentrified, but you really see from what's called the plateau in Montreal, which is like cool, hipster, high rent places. You go out more east, 
more east and you see that like bike lanes start to disappear, you see that the infrastructure is not kept up as nicely. The trains going in that direction, the subway trains, are of a lesser quality than ones going in other directions, which is like, I mean, it's, it's maybe it's a little too anecdotal. Maybe I'm just wrong. But anyways, my observations. Anyways, so he makes this comparison with the way that people in the city, indigenous people in the city are treated and how their ancestors were treated by the first colonizers who arrived. So this puts us into the fourth thesis about gender justice and decolonization. So we must acknowledge the intensified discrimination that indigenous women face, where by virtue of being both indigenous and being a woman, they, woman, they undergo double form of oppression. That would be according to Kimberly Crenshaw, who writes about intersectionality, very much um, progenitor of this idea, uh, or really bringing it to the forefront. She, she says that in the case of people who are doubly marginalized, in this case on the basis of race and gender and class as well, the oppression that they experience is greater than the sum of its parts. So it's not just like gender discrimination plus racial discrimination equals the amount of discrimination they experience. That equals uh, instead a greater amount than the two forms of discrimination. I've done episodes on Kimberly Crenshaw, if you're interested in that as well. So this means that men have to stop perpetuating violence against women. Uh, so this means as well going against uh, stopping microaggressions and other types of aggression against women. And finally, the, fa the final thesis, thesis five, is to move beyond the nation state. It means ceasing to rely on colonial Canada to have indigenous people's best interests in mind. Because clearly, clearly they don't colonial Canadian state does not have indigenous people's best interests in mind. And yeah, he ends off there. And um, I hope that this has been illuminating for you. Like I said last time, it was certainly illuminating for me. I think it's a fantastic book. One I wish I'd read sooner. Uh, and I definitely recommend you go and read it. And contributing to any indigenous organizations that might be in your country if you live in a place where uh, there are these legacies of colonialism. And yeah, on that note, if there's anything I got wrong or excluded, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, if you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, and you can tell your friends. They might get a kick out of it. And yeah, on that note, take care.